the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. My name is Naveen Rao. I'm the Senior Vice President for Health at Rockefeller Foundation, and I believe the crisis of maternal mortality is solvable. This episode, we're hearing from Dr. Naveen Rao. You just heard him there. He's from the Rockefeller Foundation, and he is a renowned expert in safe pregnancies and healthy deliveries around the world. Now, if you had to guess, how many babies would you say are born every day? I'll give you a second. Now, I cheated. I looked it up. And UNICEF estimates that an average of, wait for it, 353,000 babies are born each day around the world. Isn't that incredible? It's more than four births every second. And most of those, they're safe for both the mother and the baby. But many of those births are not. In fact, nearly 830 women die every day due to complications during pregnancy and childbirth. Now, most of these deaths can be prevented through skilled care at childbirth and just having access to emergency obstetric care. But in sub-Saharan Africa, where maternal mortality ratios are the highest, fewer than half of women are attended to by a trained midwife or a nurse or a doctor during childbirth. So you can probably guess that maternal deaths mirror the gap between the rich and the poor. Less than 1% of maternal deaths happen in wealthy countries. But I wonder if you knew that America has the highest maternal mortality rate of all industrial countries, in fact, by several times over. Maternal and child survival are the hallmarks of healthy communities, and Dr. Rao knows that. 
But he also understands that although major advances in digital technology and data science are definitely improving health intervention effectiveness, the global health divide persists. All of these wonderful innovations, well, they're just not reaching the poorest and most vulnerable communities. Dr. Rao envisions a world where the data gap and therefore the health gap can be bridged. And we'll hear more about how he reached this thinking and also his daily work towards this much better future. Let's listen to him now with Anne Applebaum. What in your background led you to this problem? How did you identify this as a concrete problem that can be solved? And I must have been about 25 part of my training as a medical student in rural India. And I remember this 16-year-old girl being brought in. Um, she had twins, and these were the days when we didn't know she had twins. There was no echocardiogram, and apparently she delivered one of the twins at home. It was a prolonged labor, and now they brought her in to the hospital because she had a second baby that uh, that was also obstructed. And I remember there and helping with that, and as part of that, Second delivery, she started bleeding and then literally bled out. And I remember trying to stem the blood, and it's so it's so horrific uh, when you see blood gushing out of a woman's vagina. It's just, and you could see that she was dying, and she knew she was dying. And but I never forget that. And but that stayed with me, and that was almost 40, 45 years ago. And when I got to America, and I finished my training, and I was a practicing physician, I was horrified to hear that this problem still exists and, in fact, is getting worse in some countries, and that even today, women die during pregnancy and childbirth. The tragedy is that we know how to save them. Most of the drugs and most of the procedures have been in place since the 1940s, and in some countries, there is no maternal mortality, so to speak, of and so it is solvable. It has been solved. In this day and age, there are some Scandinavian countries that have solved it. So if it is truly solvable and it has been solved, the fact that we still have 800 women dying every day, literally that's two jumbo jets crashing every day, I realize that we as a, the human race are not going to progress unless we say no to these unnecessary deaths. Walk me through the nature of the problem. So you say the medical profession has come up with solutions. We have ways to prevent women from dying in childbirth. What, what is stopping people from getting the health care that they need? I'll break it down. It's very traditionally broken down into three segments. They're called three delays. And this is very well researched and written about. The first delay is delay in seeking care. So this is a delay in the woman herself going to the hospital, getting prenatal checkups, uh, understanding that this needs uh, and should be a medical care and take care of her body and her health. Or the family also understanding that this should be a delivery in a facility and that usually the feeling in these villages is the mother-in-law saying, look, I delivered your husband in that back room you go and do it. We're not going to spend money on hospitals, doctors. And by the way, you still have to sweep the barn and milk the cows. So the first delay is in seeking care. And that is a huge delay. And the second delay is getting to care. So they have realized, okay, they have done that. They've gone and seen and had some prenatal checkups. But they have not planned 
for how they're going to get to care. Either they have not don't have the money at the last minute for to pay for the automobile, the taxi, or there are no ambulances, or even in certain parts, such as Zambia, if the flash floods have come and the road is washed out, uh, there's no way to get to care. So the second delay is in getting to care. And the third delay is receiving care. So sometimes they do that and they come and at the hospital, there is either no electricity, there's no medication, there's no trained doctor, there's no anesthesia, there are no facilities. And so the third delay is in receiving care. And so it's not just enough for us to say, oh, okay, we'll make sure there are ambulances because if they don't get to into the ambulance, it's meaningless. And or if they say, we say, we'll just put medication and we'll train doctors, but if you haven't done the the, the community outreach to make them want to come, it's meaningless. So really all three delays need to be addressed together. And usually most of these women die, a combination of the delays, but most often it's it's all three. So Naveen, can you give me some idea of what we're talking about in terms of numbers? Um, how many women die annually, but also how have those numbers been reduced in recent years and how do you foresee them being reduced further in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years? The goal is to reach preventable maternal mortality to reduce it down to 70 by 2030. I mean, no death is acceptable, but 70 is a number that the world has put a stake in the ground saying, if we can make sure every country comes down to 70, that would be achievable. Some countries today, that number is five. And in some countries, that number is 5,000. And so we have made huge progress uh, in the last 10 years. We've halved maternal mortality as, as a world. But we're still very far away from the 70 number. And the business as usual, as, as the rates of reduction as we see it now, will not get us to that number of 70 uh, maternal mortality. So there has been a huge progress, but the rate of reduction is not enough to get us where we want to go. Those, those are the numbers. And currently, as I said, 800 women die every day in the world. And by the way, 700 women die every year here in the U.S., it's almost two deaths a day. Wow. So how do you overcome this first barrier? How do you convince people to come to appointments, to come to hospitals? How do you how do you get them used to the idea that a birth is not something that takes place at home? So if you take India as an example, they have done a huge outreach to including conditional cash transfers to community health workers to bring these pregnant women into the facilities. And there was a push, and there's almost been an 80% increase in facility birth rates in India. So it can be done, and behavioral change communications, um, they've, been, they've used local storytelling, they've used uh, the power of uh, peer experience. So all that has worked, and in fact, there's been a huge increase in facility births rather than birthing at home. But unfortunately, that 80% increase in facility births has not resulted in an equivalent 80% decrease in maternal mortality. The facilities were not ready for this onslaught, and the quality of care they were receiving or the protocols that they had in place were not suffice. And so they didn't, we didn't initially see the 80% decrease. But the way India went about it is first is raising the demand, raising the awareness, and incentivizing women to give birth in facilities, including making the whole experience free including the transportation, and now are 
are very much focused on the quality that the woman will receive during that childbirth process. If you add to that data analysis and data predictability and predictive analytics to see which woman is at high risk, and once they come into the hospital, and to triage them and to be able to to use the uh, the latest and the best in data and technology is again leads us to believe this is solvable and hence is something we should be doing. Uh, tell me a little bit more about data. You know, we're talking about remote communities. What kind of difference can data make? How does that help doctors in in rural India? I have been in communities, and it's amazing how uh, the advent of mobile phone technology has so penetrated even the rural areas in a lighter way. They say they're probably more telephones than bathrooms in India. And so the people have access to a phone more easier than electricity. With that kind of penetration, I have seen, say, in that village, in these communities, in a house, the husband, who's usually the farmer, the male, the man has a phone. And today on his phone, the farmer has a weather forecasting app that tells him when to plant and when to harvest. He's got an app that tells him the prices of his harvest and the produce in the market that day so he knows when to sell. He also has on an app transportation like the the equivalent of the Ubers to be able to move his produce and, and his harvest to the to the cities for a better price. This exists today. I, I, we've seen it. And in that same house is the wife who's the community health worker, and she carries around six registers, does not have access to the phone, has 20 families that she's seeing, has no idea how to optimize her day, which household is at risk, which child in her community or who she's responsible is at risk for malnutrition. Why couldn't she have similar predictive analytic tools like weather forecasting that would help her do her job better. So it is not just the doctors having access to data. It is how can the community health workers, the frontline healthcare workers, have predictive analytics tools that will optimize their work process, but also in real time can give them insights and inputs on how to take care of these patients or what tests to do, which ones are the um, triage, which ones are the ones at high risk. And so this is it could be something as simple as community health workers having a kind of app on their phone that could help them give advice to pregnant women or help them make decisions about who needs what kind of care? That would be exactly the start. From there, you can envision where she could have the story of her village to know if there's a huge absence of children in one school in her community. She should know to go there to see is there a diary outbreak, what's happening, why the children are coming to school. There are so many ways we can then build on it. What about doctors in these communities? How can they access data and how can that make a difference to what they do? So uh, take supply chain. Most doctors in these villages, um, if there's a primary, secondary health center, the doctor in charge is the superintendent of the hospital. And he or she has never been trained on stock forecasting, has never been trained on um, human resource distribution and how to supply and demand. If these apps can actually, in real time, keep track of stockouts, demands, is there any way that these the data can give a better insight to these doctors to be able to do 
a better supply management, better access to where are the crises and can they can they have an access that tells them based on social media and other data inputs, where are the migrants coming from, what's happening across borders, where is the war-torn area, what's happening, is there another Ebola brewing? Data can help identify hot spots and cold spots. Cold spots could be a whole region where children have not been immunized and, and nobody's kept track and we don't know because they are in the blind spots. Hot spots could be where there's flash uh, pandemics or, or something brewing that we could get an earlier warning. But what about specifically to deal with the issue of maternal mortality? Is there, you know, are there particular kinds of programs or apps or is there a kind of data that doctors can find particularly useful? So if the frontline healthcare worker can find out if there is a region where women are not coming to antenatal care for visits and could be very easily tracked based on whether the woman has made an antenatal visit and if she hasn't, they could even make home visits or they could encourage the woman to come in. And we know, for example, simple antenatal visit to check for protein in the urine, blood pressure, sugar levels make a huge difference. I've also seen an app. It is in, it's in formulation stage. It's, it's actually, the camera can take a video. So I've seen where in India, the healthcare worker waves this camera, her cell phone over the belly of the pregnant woman. And inside, there is an algorithm that based on that image and that picture that's taken, the woman's size of the pelvis is measured and the baby's head is measured, and an algorithm predicts whether this will be an obstructed labor, whether the, the child's head is too big for the woman's pelvis. Wow. And that can be put in a cell phone? Yes, I've seen it. It already exists. It's, it obviously has to be finalized and commercialized, but people are thinking that way. So if you think about how data and applications are changing our lives, today there's so many people with the Apple Watch that has the health monitor on it, what can we do if we take that kind of mindset and those kind of assets to the developing world to improve public health, community health? And to me, I'm using maternal mortality as a sentinel indicator, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, where it tells me the status and the health of the community because the first ones to die, the most vulnerable, are the pregnant women. And if we can save them, it means very likely we have a system in place that is saving uh, many people. And so these data, these tools are, are needed, are needed today. They exist. It's just that somebody has to put it together, and that's where we are. Do you get any opposition to the use of technology and data? Do you find that people distrust it? Do you, do you have people rejecting it? We, uh, not, in, not in the countries that I am working in right now. I can presume it will happen. India is putting in place draconian uh, and much needed in many aspects health data privacy and security laws. So it is coming. But right now, when we show up and we talk about how we are helping uh, women survive childbirth, there is open arms. And, and even, in, in, even in, in communities here in the U.S., it's the only developed country in the world where maternal mortality is rising. And that is really an absolute shame, considering that we spend more than any other country on health care. 
And is that for is that for similar reasons? Do you have these same kinds of obstacles in the U.S. that you have? Yes, they are the same three delays, but they have a different connotation. So the second delay is not that they uh, there's a flash flood and they can't get to the second delay. Is she's in a housing project and taxis won't come there. She doesn't have money for a taxi and she can see the hospital, but she can't cross it because there's a huge highway in between. So, yes, you can envision the delays. The concepts are the same. The details are different. Also here in this country, we have slightly different causes. In in the developing world, the three big causes are a woman bleeding, which is postpartum hemorrhage, preeclampsia, which is when the blood pressure shoots up and you get seizures and brain damage. Uh, The third is sepsis, which is infection. Here in the U.S., it is coagulation disorders, it is cardiovascular disease, it's comorbidities, it's older women, it's obesity. It's also general lack of health and women not engaging with the healthcare system. So there are similarities, there are some nuanced differences, but the bottom line is the same. Women are dying um, from preventable causes. And to think that the rate is going up in this country is is just uh, unacceptable. No, I agree. It's very shocking. It's all very well talking about technology and apps and cell phones, but how can you use this technology in parts of the world where power is unreliable and internet connections are unreliable? Um, Do you have solutions for that as well? So any and all attempts at improving health will also have to, by nature, address the data inequity gap. Yes, electricity internet connectivity, all these are current barriers, but these have been bridged. There are solutions for this. Uh, There are off-grid solutions. There are offline solutions. And in fact, most of the apps that exist and most of the ones that are working right now in parts of Africa, by large part, work offline. And then when the internet connection is there, uh, they, they do the upgrading. So these are solvable by technology. Uh, but it's that feeling that we can and should do it. That is the piece that we need to cross. And once we've crossed that, I have a feeling we can get to all these current barriers. Even if you were to ask me 20 years ago, if I was in charge of all health for a coastal village that was that was routinely hit by hurricanes, and they asked me what would I have to do to make uh, to save people uh, when the hurricane comes. Based on what I knew then, I would have said, oh, we need to build more shelters, we need to have more hospitals, we need to have more cholera vaccines, we need to have more clean water. How do I save the lives based on what I know? But today, probably the thing that saves more lives is the weather predicting app forecast that tells me the storm is coming and I can evacuate people. And I would have never thought of that as saving more lives 25 years ago. I would have built more hospitals, more shelters. But today... That single app is saving more lives than uh, than all the things we could have done. Similarly, today, if we were talking about how can we save these mothers from dying, we're talking about internet connectivity, we're talking about more hospitals, better training, on and on and on. Perhaps there's technology out there that will take us to a completely different place. I just want to make sure that the current barriers don't hold us back and that we do understand there's a data inequity and that that is exacerbating health inequities. And what are the obstacles to you? Um, what's still standing in your way? What's keeping you from bringing down the this mortality rate more quickly? So I will, I will start that 
by quoting Dr. Muhammad Fatala. Dr. Muhammad Fatala was an obstetrician, uh, is an obstetrician who, who considered the father of this whole concept. He very famously once said, and I'm quoting him, women are dying not because we don't know how to save them. They're dying because we have yet to decide they're worth saving. And to live that, it is very clear that for any of what solutions we come up with to stick, sustain, and scale in-country, first we need the country, uh, we need uh, political sustainability, we need political will, we need the policymakers, the decision makers to decide that the women are worth saving. Second, we need social sustainability. We need the culture to be where the woman is valued and where healthcare is considered important for these women to get and to deliver in a facility. And then we also need the commercial sustainability that whatever systems are put in place have to benefit society and that we do understand that these are not just programs that we can go in and set up as philanthropy and turn around and walk away because we need to teach them how to fish and then we need to make it commercially viable for them to fish rather than just give them the fish. So we need to set up systems where this is then sustained locally within the community. So that is the barrier is how do we sustain, scale the the solutions that we put in place. But it also sounds like, you know, there are these incredible pieces of technology available, but there's also a fundamental emotional or psychological obstacle, which is that not everywhere do people think that women's lives are important. Obviously, that is true here in the U.S. too. There are countries that have come together that have realized that saving the woman is not just the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. Uh, and there is equality and, and there is no maternal mortality, so to speak of. So... It is just this, that there are still communities and, and their countries that uh, wage political wars on women's bodies, and, and even here in this country is no different. So we need to be able to break those barriers, it, but just breaking those barriers is not enough. We need to come up with the medication, technology, training to then actually really save them because no amount of cultural training will help the woman who needs a cesarean section. A lot of people listening to this might be inspired by some of the things you've said and might like to want to try and help solve this problem. Are there things that listeners can do? Do you have any advice for people listening? So the first thing, there are many organizations that are linked. I would say get, be aware, get to know it. And if you, and depending on the sliding scale, whether it's just your pocket, whether you can give some money, whether you can give time, whether you can give uh, some volunteer hours, work, it's a sliding scale. I think it all depends on where your heart is. But I think the journey should start from educating oneself, finding out who are in this space, and then uh, reaching out. And obviously, uh, Rockefeller Foundation has our website. And on that website, there's a health section. And there you can see how we are working towards uh, trying to solve this. Really powerful words from Dr. Naveen Rao from the Rockefeller Foundation there about maternal mortality and also talking about what it's really dealing with, which is women and children's lives and how things can change when society decides that they are worth saving. 
Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter, and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise, and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.